Hello, and welcome to the Madame Class TV podcast. I'm your host, Nella. Hi guys, so today we are going to be talking about the book Anna Karenina. This is the first podcast for Madame Class TV, so thank you guys all for listening. Today, basically what we're going to be talking about is a few insights that I gathered from the book, a little bit about Leo Tolstoy's history, and then we're going to get into some vocabulary words because I know that can really trip people up when they're reading. So let's get started. So basically, the first thing I noticed is that there are many different ways to say people's names in this book. Uh, we have Stepan, and then, let me try and pronounce this right, Arkadevich. Arkadevich. So that's one way, or you could say Steva Oblonsky. And I think Leo Tolstoy does this because he wants to have the characters be perceived in different ways based on the way he says their name or which name he uses for each sentence. So I find that very interesting. I don't know Russian, so I don't know what these words mean in terms of the definition of these words or the background or the class that they're coming from. Maybe one way is a very casual way of somebody of saying his name or saying someone's name as opposed to a very formal way of saying someone's name. I'm not sure. I believe Stepan is the formal way and Steva is the casual way. I believe they mentioned that in the book, but the other ways of saying people's names, I'm not too sure. So that would be something that I would love to get more in depth with and learn more about as we progress in reading Anna Karenina and just learning more about it. So that's just a little insight that I wanted to bring to you guys' attention. So another thing I wanted to talk about was Leo Tolstoy's history. Just a little brief facts. He grew up in Russia in the 1800s. He lived on he lived on an estate. Uh, his family was well to do. They were wealthy. They came from money. It was a good upbringing for him. He really cared about the lower class, and he really cared about helping people. And so he dedicated his life to that later on. But first of all, what he did was he kind of got involved in some debauchery, you know, was kind of um, promiscuous, but then he settled down, got married. He um, got married and he had a wife, duh. <laughs> and um, his wife really helped him settle down and get focused. He had quite a few children and his wife would help him with his manuscripts and just help write his manuscripts for him basically just copying what he had already written not that he had that not that she wrote his books for him so Anna Karenina was a book that came about during a hard time in Tolstoy's life uh, as he was writing it his brother died and then he kind of spiraled from there he 
was in a really rough spot when writing Anna Karenina. He was in a, I believe, like a transformational period in his life in between two points. And after he wrote Anna Karenina, he kind of got really involved in basically helping the lower class. He wrote um, a book for children to how to, on how to learn, um, an educational book, um, as I believe, you know, Texas, not Texas Instru Instruments, McGraw-Hill would, or um, what's another kind of book? Uh, I want to say... I want to say Princeton books, but I'm not too sure. But, you know, just an educational book. Um, definitely McGraw-Hill, something like that. And then he got involved. He became really religious. And, you know, as we know, Leo Tolstoy wrote War and Peace, which is a, which is a huge classic. He also wrote Anna Karenina, again, another classic book. Really long books. Uh very very long books um i downloaded war and peace one time and i couldn't believe how many pages it was and so i kind of you know left that on the back burner but we'll definitely get around to it i think leo tolstoy would be somebody to really a really good person to dive into for our community here at madame class tv and somebody to really get involved in and learn about because i think he has such a rich way of writing there are some things that he writes about you know greedily looking at somebody or greedily eating and I just thought what an interesting way to say that somebody is you know overindulging or you know just being very you know in your face or obnoxious about something um, I thought that was interesting and I liked that but I think Leo Tolstoy would be somebody to definitely um, just dive into. And so basically, I'm reading Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Um, I'm reading the Barnes & Noble uh, Classics version. And the introduction and notes are by Amy Mandelker. And she does a lot with... Leo Tolstoy has done a lot of analysis and translated by Constance Garnett. So I like the translation of this book. I, ha I haven't read any other translations of the book, but so far I'm liking what I'm reading. The original manuscript, of course, was written in Russian. Um, but I really like Amy Mandelker's analysis of everything she does. She has a foreword or an introduction, basically. Let me just pick up the book here and take a little look at this. So there's the world of Leo Tolstoy and Anna Karenina. There is a timeline here. Then there's an introduction, which Amy Mandelker writes. And I like it a lot. I have a few things highlighted in here. And here's what it says. Amy Mandelker is Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at the Graduate Center of the City of University at the City University of New York. She's the author of Framing Anna Karenina, Tolstoy, The Woman Question, and The Victorian Novel, Ohio State University Press 1993, and editor of Bakhtin in Context Across the Disciplines. 
She is co-editor of Approaches to Teaching, Anna Karenina. Um, Anthology of Spiritual Autobiography. Editor of the Tolstoy Studies Journal. So she is very involved in Anna Karenina as a book and Leo Tolstoy as a writer. So I thought it was a really rich perspective to get before reading this book. So let's get right into it. I want to start at like a climactical point of the book or part one of the book as you know we were reading part one for this week and let's just talk about some of the vocabulary words that have you know made this book richer and and more interesting because you know as things go by and as times change you can lose what the author was trying to say or things he was trying to do with his words if you don't know what the things mean if you don't know what the vocabulary words are so i really really wanted to make a podcast about all the things that might trip somebody up when reading the book and that you might pass over but something that could have been really important so that's why i think it's really important to know these words and that's why i took the time to look them up and and teach you and help you guys learn so um, and help myself learn too because some of these words I didn't know what they meant as well so let's go right into it so excuse me you're gonna hear a little bit of clicking all right so right in chapter 23 we see the word quadrille and so that was during the dance scene i guess you could call it the ball uh kitty danced with many suitors and this was a dance that was popular in the 18th and 19th century and as we know anna karenina was written in the 19th century uh i don't know exactly when the author wanted people to believe the characters were living in but i would say between the period of 1850 and 1870 because they made a lot of mention of things that happened in like 1861 and 1864 and things like that so uh that is why the quadrille and i hope i'm pronouncing that right <laughs> was um, a popular dance and it was actually a popular dance in Europe and its colonies. And I think it's interesting that this dance was then danced in a Moscow-Russia ball. Because that means that these people are very worldly and they're very cultured. And I find it so interesting that they were dancing that dance, which means they knew it, which means that they had traveled or that they had come in contact with this. So I like so that's one of those things where if you weren't paying attention or if you didn't know or if you didn't take the time to look it up, you'd be like, okay, they're dancing like a traditional, you know, Russian dance. No, it's European. And that just goes to show their, you know, their stature in terms of their uh, class and background. So it's similar to square dancing. I love square dancing. I think it's so much fun. So I think that's why, you know, she probably was having a good time. Well, Kitty was having a good time until she noticed Anna and Vronsky flirting with each other. <laughs> so that kind of dampened the mood. So, yeah. So then the next dance is called the Mazurka. 
And then this one is a Polish folk dance. So again, just speaks to how cultured and how worldly these people were. They knew dances from Europe. They knew dances from Poland. And they were dancing them, you know, well, I'm sure. And they were dancing them the correct way. So that just says a lot. So then we go into the word sledge. And it is a low sled drawn by animals, typically on snow, ice, or grass. So it is winter in Moscow as we read this book in part one. They're make, they make mention of a lot of the snow. There's mention of a lot of the cold, the wind, the chill. It's icy. I guess we'll figure out later on what that means in terms of romance because that's what this book is about love and romance and we will see basically why the author chose to set it in the winter time for Anna and Vronsky to fall in love because authors never do anything on accident so this is going to be really interesting to see how this plays out and what it means so it, that's what a sledge is and this is something that Levin used when going to see his brother in the cold snowy winter of Moscow so uh, I give a if you don't know who Levin is his name is Constantin Levin and he is loosely connected to Anna in a way that I explain on my YouTube video about this book. Um, I talk about part one, I give a little bit of a summary, so if you'd like to know more about what's going on, I'm not going to take too much of the time to discuss it here, but basically Levin is a suitor of Kitty, and Kitty is Anna's sister-in-law's sister. So that's how they're all connected. And Levin is a good guy, he comes from money, Levin is somebody who is, uh, people say, loosely connected to Leo himself. Even his name, Lev, is Levin, which could be short for um, Leo in a way, people say. So it's a play on his name, and he uses Levin to, Leo Tolstoy uses Levin to share a lot of his views in the book. Because as we go on throughout the book, like I said, he has a kind of like a religious transformation. He creates some um, books for children and then he also does translations of the Gospels. He kind of has like a religious awakening. And so that happens towards the end of him writing Anna Karenina. And uh, another thing I wanted to mention was that he had a rough time writing Anna's character. He was writing it and he was like you know this is like an adopted child that you kind of want to give back you know <laughs> or she wa he wanted to make her you know a a protagonist not an antagonist you know he she cheats on her husband but you know she she still wants the character to be liked and to be lovable and you want her to, you want to feel pitiful for her not or you want to pity her, not be mad at her in any way. And I've watched the movie Anna Karenina with, um, I forget her name, but she's a very famous actress. She also was in Pride and Prejudice. 
the the remake that was recent and I watched that so I, I basically know how it all goes down but you end up you don't feel like she's the antagonist at all you really do feel sorry for her you feel bad for her and you like her so I think that if the movie is any reflection on the book then Tolstoy did and accomplished what he set out to do at least in my perspective it'd be interesting to hear other people's perspectives as well so yeah so then next we have a porter somebody who carries luggage and other things around for people um, so again we're going in we're talking about Levin here so I believe we're in chapter 24 maybe chapter 25 but just going on to say that Levin had money he had an estate just like Leo had an estate he grew up on an estate I think it was called Pollyanna so yeah so of course he had porters to carry around um, things for him so the next thing we have is a jerkin which is a close-fitting collarless men's jacket without sleeves it was popular in the 16th and 17th century so this book like we said before was based in the 19th century so I wonder if they were trying to make Levin's brother because Levin was brother was the one who was wearing the jerkin seem old-fashioned in a way um, we meet Levin's brother who believes in the revolution who is a communist and he's a commu- sorry I heard people talking in the background <laughs> kind of threw me off guard but he is a communist and maybe he's trying to appeal to the working class who are still probably wearing those kind of clothes uh, you know how fashion goes, the people who are on trend and who are moving forward are usually the people with money and then the people who are still wearing, you know, those old, you know, untrendy clothes or not trendy clothes are the ones who don't have as much money and they still have just to recycle what they have. So either, I think it's making a statement in my opinion, but it would be nice to hear more of an expert's opinion and um, maybe in the future we can get that. So I'm I'm so I'm not positive on that. Uh, galoshes galoshes are a word that I've heard before many times, but now I finally um, know what they what know what it means. Uh, it's a waterproof overshoe, usually made out of rubber. So again, they needed it for the winter in Moscow. So it said that Levin took off his galoshes when he came into his brother's house, Nikolai, Nikolai's house, and galoshes are. Just something to keep your shoes you know protect your shoes from the mud and the snow and the water and all of that stuff so a Kiev or not a Kiev Kiev is a city now considered to be in the Ukraine so Russia quote-unquote at the time was a much larger empire it seems than it is now um, since now it's part of the Ukraine and it's a separate country so, you know, we all know the Tsars and how big and powerful they were and how much land they conquered and had. And so Kiev and the Kiev University that I believe Lenin's brother Nikolai met some people um, was part of Russia at the time. So no need to call it the Ukraine or anything like that. So then we have Bad House and that's just a brothel um, prostitution house. Um, that's where Levin found his girlfriend, Maria. So, mm-hmm, there's that. 
Beasts of burden, a phrase commonly used, but a beast of burden is an animal that carries or pushes heavy loads, so animals such as camels, mules, or donkeys. And in this book, it was used as a synonym for the poor in Russia, who Levin's brother called beasts of burden. So, you know, a lot happened before the revolution, and I think we all know that before revolutions happen, a lot of things there's a lot of tension before an uprising basically so if these people were poor and they were hurting and they were beasts of burden you know carrying heavy loads you know physical or me um, metaphorically there's going to be an uprising which as we did see did happen with the um soviet union um communist party taking power so yeah Counting house, it's where a business manages its operations or accounting, so that was mentioned in the book. Saddle horse, a horse bred and trained for riding, so Levin was um, rich enough to have his own horses that he grew up with. He was talking about how this horse that was, I believe, you know, driving him around used to be his saddle horse when he grew when he was growing up. So that just goes to show, you know, where his position in society. Uh, a setter bitch sorry I hate saying that word but <laughs> I hate saying it like that but it's you know we all know that technically bitch means female dog and a setter bitch is a female dog used to hunt small game and Levin had one of these a stag is a male deer so that was mentioned and that comes up as well a bailiff so I usually think of a bailiff you know, on Judge Judy or on Judge Joe Mathis, you know, who hears the cases and brings them in, you know, kind of like a a person of the court, you know, a security person of the court. But here a bailiff is something else. This is a farm bailiff and it says farm bailiffs exist on estates. The farm bailiff is employed by the property owner and his managerial duties can include collecting rent, taxes, and supervising both farm operations and laborers. So this bailiff told Levin something he didn't want to hear about one of his inventions for drying buckwheat. He told him that they scorched the wheat. So we, as we see, Levin is kind of like an inventor and he was a little bit disappointed to hear what the bailiff had to say but the bailiff was kind of like you know i told you so <laughs> in that sense you you pick up on that when you're reading it a snowdrift is a snow heap that has been piled up by the wind so it must have been really cold that year they must have gotten a lot of snow because it was piling up just based on the wind because i you know nowadays we have these huge plows you know machines that just pull big piles of snow i live in a colder state and you see all the snow piled up, but I don't usually think of it as snow drift. I'm like, okay, well, somebody must have moved and pushed that there. So in order for that to be happening, they must have gotten a lot of snow that year. Uh, piebald means having irregular patches of two colors, typically black and white, on an animal. And so Levin was taking a look at some of his animals and noticed this on one of them. Uh, a haunch is the buttock and the thigh together like mentioned together again referring to Levin looking at looking at his animals uh the drawing room so I when I first read the definition of a drawing room I was like oh a living room <laughs> but it's not um it's different 
So a drawing room is a room in a large private house which guests can be received and entertained. And it's derived from the 16th century withdrawing room, which makes sense, like you withdraw your guests to this area. Uh, the difference between a drawing room and a living room, so here we go, is that the drawing room is more formal and for guests, whereas the living room is homier and for family members mainly. Uh, the drawing room is usually found by the entrance of the home, so people don't have to walk through people's homes and, you know, kind of be impolite in doing so. So it's just right there. They can be entertained in that area. And the living room is usually situated in the middle of a house. And again, it's for the family members. So that's the difference between a drawing room and a family room. So there you go. A cambric handkerchief. A cambric is one of the finest and densest pieces of cloth. It comes from the French commune district or French commune or district of Cabray. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It looks like Cambrai or Cambrai, but it when I clicked on it to hear the pronunciation it was Cabray. So so Anna had a bunch of these handkerchiefs made of one of the finest and densest pieces of cloth and which just speaks to her wealth and her place in society again. So we're dealing with people who really are high up there. But I think it's interesting because they're dealing with problems that everybody deals with. So on one end, Tolstoy's talking about their wealth and, you know, stature in society. But at the other end, they're dealing with love and, you know, Levin's being, dealing with being rejected and Anna's dealing with, you know, um, infatuation and lust and... You know, and I believe Amy Mandelker talks about this, how, you know, the passion isn't a passion of lust, really. It's not there yet. It's a passion between Vronsky and Anna that's more, they're in, they, they're falling in love with the per, each other's personalities and they like the way they act and who they are, not like I'm just attracted to you physically and you know what you could do for me in a physical sense but more so about a deeper connection that they're attracted to for with each other um it says once that like vronsky is attracted to her gray eyes you know that's not something that usually people are attracted to i don't think so um yeah we're dealing they're dealing with everyday situations you know this could happen to anybody but they're just higher up at they were in during their time so deft is neatly skillful and quick in one's movements so neatly skillful and quick in one's movements and anna had hands like this these they said she was or ed tolstoy said she was going through her purse deftly or her bag so this just kind of speaks to Anna's character, and there's so many different ways that each character looks at Anna, but it's the overarching theme is that they're like, they are awestruck by her, they're impressed by her, they are in love with her, children love her, Kitty love, loved her, um, you know, in this way that she would love like a big sister or a role model. Um, Vronsky is obviously attracted to her. Her husband, Karenin, is, you know, loves her in, in his own way. Um, everybody just finds her. Dolly is very, you know, attracted to her in a way, again, that you would love a sister or a role model. So 
that's the overarching theme of Anna is that she's really likable and she's just something somebody that people gravitate towards and I think that's really interesting so paper knife so apparently books needed to be cut in order to be read sometimes back then so Anna was reading an English novel and it, she needed one of these knives to read it um, Baronetsy is the holder of a baronetcy, a hereditary title awarded by the British Crown. So in the book Anna was reading, um, one of these men had a baronetcy, and they talk about the book. Tolstoy says in the book that you know she wanted to be part of the action; she didn't really want to be reading about it, but she was anyway. So. The practice of awarding baronetcies was originally introduced in England in the 14th century, so in the 1300s, and was used by James I of England, or James I of England, in 1611 as a means of raising funds. So, you know, you have your barons, you have your lords, you have your, um, you know, people with different titles, but in a way, they're just managing things for the king or the ruler. So that happened a lot, you know, back in those times. So Lee, L-E-E, -E, the side of something sheltered from the wind. So Anna was in the part of the carriage where there was a lull in the heavy wind. So again, we talked about the snow drift and we talked about the heavy winds and we talked about the cold and the fact that it's winter. So I just find it so interesting that he chose to start off a romantic relationship in the winter. You know, is it foreshadowing maybe that it's all going to die because winter is when usually things die and end and, you know, the breakup or the almost break of a marriage between Steva and Dolly, you know, I think it's a really interesting place to start a love story. You know, usually you think of summer or spring when everything's blooming. So I just find that really interesting. Muff, a tube made of fur or other warm material into which the hands are placed for warmth. I've seen these before. They're like, think of it as a sock with one of the ends cut off and then covered in fur and you stick your hands one in the other side and it just looks so classy and I love it. So that's something that um, Anna had and again, it just speaks to her wealth assiduously means with great care and perseverance so this is how Anna said enough enough to Vronsky asking him to stop making advances towards her and I like that word assiduously just with great care and perseverance so she was trying Anna tried very hard to get Vronsky to just stop making advances towards her. She even left Moscow early so that way she wouldn't have to run into him anymore, but then he followed her. You know, he tr she tried really, really hard, and um, you have to at least give her credit for that. So, indubitable cannot be doubted. So Vronsky believed without a doubt that he had the right to love Anna, so interesting very interesting kind of shows his confidence maybe cockiness pride you know there's a part in the book where it talks about how Vronsky didn't see people like people he saw them like as things and he just didn't really care for people they said that his person sitting beside him was like rubbing up against him to kind of just show him that he was human you know 
maybe he was doing it unconsciously, who knows, the other person, but, um, very, I don't know if you call that confidence or uncaringness or cold, not coldness, but just, um, lack of feeling, you know, just being really self-absorbed and narcissistic. So, um, scythe, a tool used for cutting crops such as grass or wheat with a long curved blade at the end of a long pole attached to which are one or two short handles. So I believe there is a scythe on the communist Russian flag, I believe that's what it is, just representing the people who are doing that manual labor, cutting wheat and everything like that, you know, kind of like the emancipation of that and the care of those workers. So, yeah. Samovar, or a self-boiler, is like a teapot. And the way this was referred to, it was for somebody, about somebody's personality, which means um, in the, the notes that Amy Mandelcore provides, means that they had a fussier, bubbly personality. So just think of like a teapot or like a pot of water boiling and bubbling. I believe that's what a samovar did. And if you just Google samovar, you'll see the most, the prettiest pots. They're very pretty, very elegant. So I would recommend you look them up because I, I really love the way they look. So I love you. <laughs> Never mind, I'm not going to do that. But I think you guys know where I'm going with that one. But I'm not trying to get in trouble on my podcast. <laughs> I'm not endorsing anything. All right. Coteries, a small group of people with shared interest or taste, especially one that is exclusive of other people. So basically a click. Um, so we all know what a click means. If not, it's just, you know, like exclusive group. They, you, they give the appearance that they are hard to be penetrated, you know, they, it's difficult to get in that group. You can't just be a part of them. You have to have a little something special or a little bit of what they're looking for. They're just exclusive for the sake of being exclusive, so that way they can appear to be exclusive. So <laughs> um, that's what a coteries was, and um, referring to cliques or the coteries in St. Petersburg that one of Anna's friends was a part of. Which makes sense for people of her class to be a part of things like that. So then next we have Belle Sauer, which means sister-in-law, and I think that's French. And Anna was referring to her sister-in-law, Dolly. So sometimes you'll see people like in the book, you know, mention something in French and then they'll kind of say it in Italian. So again, just speaking to their class, you know, they had a lot of class, they knew different languages, they uh, knew about different dance styles, they were just very worldly. So a study is a room in a house that is used for paperwork, computer work, or reading, obviously not computer work back in the 1800s, <laughs> but for paperwork or for reading. So historically, the study of a house was reserved for the use of a pri as a private office and reading room of a family father as the formal head of household. So Karenin is was the f family father and the formal head of the household, so he would go in his study every night to read, and Anna knew his routine, but I just find it interesting that, you know, Anna, after a while, became bored 
with her husband and became, you know, irritated with him, found things about him bothersome, said, you know, talking about his ears, like, were his ears always like that? You know, she just becomes disenchanted by the whole thing. Um, not that she ever was enchanted, really. We don't really know how she felt about her husband before, but we know that it's changed. And maybe she just, I think that she just had a, a respect for him. And she slowly started to lose that as the story progresses. So resplendent is attractive and impressive through being richly colorful and or sumptuous. So this is describing one of Vronsky's friend's girlfriends. And she was a baroness, which means the wife of a baron, which is another title of honor and often hereditary, like we were talking about the baronetcy. If I hope I'm saying that correctly. Let's see. Baronetcy. Maybe next time I'll put these in alphabetical order, hey? <laughs> but I think I'm saying that right. So, another title. You know, they're talking about the social upper class, everybody moving around in the same circles, you know, things of that nature. So, prattle, foolish or inconsequential talk. When referring to listening to Vronsky's friends talk, this is how it was mentioned in the book. So, um, which after watching the movie of Anna Karenina, I think is foreshadowing because, you know, who you hang out with is who you are. And if Vronsky's friends are all talking about inconsequential things, this Baroness is trying to find a way to divorce her husband and be with one of Vronsky's friends and, you know, birds of a feather fly together or flock together and... Um, it just says a lot about him, how he, because he eventually, I mean, the movie makes it seem, and I think by reading the introduction, it happened a little bit differently in the book, but the movie makes it seem as if he kind of abandoned her and just went for somebody else. And so, fickle. And I think that was the word I was looking for before when I was talking about Vronsky, is that he was very fickle. When I was talking about how he just saw people as things and as objects, that was the word that I was looking for. And so the last word we have is a souse or sauce. Not sure how to say it exactly. It would be wonderful to get an expert on the subject in here to kind of, you know, talk me through these things. But um, we're all just doing the best that we can and I hope this has helped you. But souse means to do to it sounds like douse to me, so souse to soak in or drench with liquid. So very close to the word douse which means practically the same thing. So one of Vronsky's friends was washing his neck in a water basin and was sousing water on himself. So, um, yeah, so I hope this has helped you. This book is very rich. It's very detailed. It's, it's all about human nature. Even the beginning of it when talking about Stepan or Steva, you know, how he was good-natured and how he just, you know, went about his business. Yeah, he cheated on his wife, but, you know, he still cared about her and didn't want to see her hurt, you know. there He knows how to... Character development is just so well done. You feel like you could almost picture these characters. You can see what their face looks like. You can see what they're interested in you can see what they would do in certain situations you just kind of get them and you get them fast because he's so good at describing them so um i hope you guys are having as much fun and fulfillment from reading this book as i am and um 
So until next time, you guys, stay classy.